Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marketing in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you aren't receiving my weekly email newsletter, go to unchainedpodcast.com to sign up. And don't forget that Unchained and Unconfirmed are now on YouTube. You can go subscribe there to be alerted to all the latest episodes of both podcasts. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Today's guest is Jan Lieberman, co-founder at Delphi Digital. Welcome, Jan. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. I want to discuss Bitcoin dominance, which is at 70% of the total crypto markets, more than double of its low of about 33%, which was at the height of the crypto bubble in January 2018. Why do you think the dominance has risen that much? It's been a combination of things. And initially, it starts with, you know, the the that peak happens, and then there's the, the, the spillover and massive sell-off, and you have this consolidation. And so, you know, that takes a couple of months. And after a while, the space gradually matures, but you still have a lot of these projects that exist that are very far from developing uh, or far from uh, delivering anything that they're developing. And a lot of the times, even what they're working on, that doesn't necessarily translate to a situation where their tokens can accrue value. So you still have a lot of situations where many tokens are, are still massively overvalued. And at the same time, you're losing incremental, you, you don't really have the incremental buyer that you had before. So what you saw at the end of 2017 was, was kind of peak euphoria as retail was coming in and you're hearing everyone, you know, asking what's the next token and, and everyone's, you know, in hindsight talks about how that was an obvious sign. But what that really means is, you know, the incremental buyers there were retail who were looking to buy high and kind of sell higher. And the issue is that that doesn't really exist anymore. So. Every incremental dollar coming into the space, I think the percentage of money coming in that's retail is significantly smaller than what we saw at the end of 2017. So you do have more institutional money coming in now. And not to say that there's a lot. It's, it's a very gradual process. But the money that is coming in, there is considerably more of it now than there was before. And if you think about institutional investors, they, they, there's a lot of mandates that they have to follow and and there's a very you know lengthy due diligence process in most cases. And what that does is it kind of removes the ability to start to really dive to, to invest in a lot of these other alt, very speculative coins. So what happens is a lot of these investors, as they're starting to learn about crypto, it's, it's very hard to kind of educate them about the space. And, and, and it's, it's a very gradual process and, and it'll kind of continue for a while. And what you start to realize is, the, the narrative for Bitcoin and kind of understanding how it accrues its value is, is a lot easier to understand. In, you know, in layman's terms, it, it starts with just a, a digital option on gold, and then you can kind of um, 
explain the, the narrative going forward and, and how that can develop further. But that's, you know, that's step one. And then you have to realize everything after that, whether it's web three and anything else, it becomes increasingly harder. So you start to realize that a majority of the money coming into the space is going to really have to focus on some of the more favorable risk reward opportunities. And, and Bitcoin certainly fits that bill. And so you have a, a majority of the money coming into the space focusing on Bitcoin. At the same time, you so what that causes, you start to lose the incremental buyer for a lot of these altcoins. And at the same time, individuals who are in the space, you, you, you kind of have to assume that, you know, the people that are in the space now, as a whole, the space is a lot more knowledgeable than it was two years ago. So people start to realize part of it is kind of, you know, just Darwinism where the people who are just sitting in, in some of the riskiest stuff have, have kind of been burned and, and are lo- no longer interested. And that's totally fair. But what, what happens is now you have the individuals that are in the space are also starting to realize, all right, well, the incremental dollar is going to be coming into Bitcoin for the most part. So it, it makes a lot more sense for me to kind of sit in there, sit in that, in that space to take advantage. And so you, you kind of have to realize that, you know, there's a certain amount of elements that you need to kind of create a quote unquote alt season. And, and one of them being retail investment and the other being a diminishing risk return profile for Bitcoin. And that's what you kind of saw with where Bitcoin topped in mid to late December. And then you, those two, three weeks afterwards was when you really saw the dominance um, tank was, you know, Bitcoin hit uh, the high teens and people start to realize I can't really get that multiplier. So you have retail and you have greed that kind of kicks in and starts to venture further out into the risk spectrum in the crypto space. And so when that happens, that's when you kind of see dominance fall. But afterwards, after, you know, the whole space kind of um, collapses and, and, and consolidates, then it starts to kind of flow into quality. And so you, we, we've seen minor um, dips in, in dominance. Uh, for example, one in, in, in March was the most recent and the most significant, I'd say. And that was right before Bitcoin really took off. So what happened was uh, the space kind of understood that it's, it was starting to bottom. But Bitcoin wasn't really moving as much. And so the risk reward kind of shifted towards more of these altcoins. And so there was a, a more of a search for risk. And then as soon as Bitcoin started taking off April 1st, alts really never stood a chance. You, you did have a few um, uh, individual ones that took off and did well. And there's a few that exist now that, that have kind of even maintained or improved um, their price versus Bitcoin just based on, on how they're structured. But for the most part, it's it's been a flow to quality and, and just understanding that you're not really going to have that kind of massive um, search for returns until we probably see new Bitcoin all-time highs. And I know that there are a couple of factors that Delphi Digital looks at that involve unspent transaction outputs, also called UTXOs. So what can you glean about Bitcoin's price from UTXOs and this other factor that you look at, which is a UTXO adjusted variation on the NVT ratio, which is defined as the network value to transaction signal? Absolutely. And so what we do with these um, UTXOs is we can use their age. So whenever Bitcoin's moved, the new UTXO is created. And so you, you kind of use every time it's moved as a proxy for buying and selling. And so and, and just for people who sure. maybe don't know, a UTXO is kind of like the change, right, from a transaction. Like if I'm spending, you know, like a $20 bill on a $10 thing, and then there's $10 of, you know, 
change left over. That's sort of the idea for a UTXO. Is that right? Right. And that's kind of how, how, how the ledger works, where it, it's, it, it measures the portion of your holdings that w- weren't spent. So you basically, all of it flows to one place and then the portion that's not spent comes back. And so that unspent portion is now the new UTX. Is, that's the existing one. And then the new one is created when it's sent. So it's, it's kind of how the ledger, um, how it works. And so by understanding um, the age of each one, you can uh, approximate when the last time it moved. And so by doing that, especially on an aggregate level, you can understand um, different pockets of, of Bitcoin's age. And what that gives you an understanding of is how long, you know, longer term holders have been holding and whether or not there's been a lot of, a lot of movement in the, uh, in the underlying um, quantity of coins. And so, and so what, what are you, you seeing in that regard? And so um, what we're seeing is, is that a lot of the long-term holders still are kind of continuing to hold. And so it, it was something that we were able to, it was, it was helpful to kind of understand when the, when the bottom would come in, because you, you'd know, you'd understand that, all right, a lot of these long-term holders have really sold off and you, you see them sell off as the price peaks and as it comes down, because, you know, they've, they've held for three to five years or five or five years and more, and they've seen these cycles and they kind of understand how they play out. And so once you kind of see that these individuals have sold off, you start to realize that there's not a lot of um, sell pressure coming in. And so that kind of helps create the bottom because now you need incrementally less demand to, to offset the selling that's naturally happening from, from miners and then from these long-term holders. So by understanding um, the actions of the long-term holders, it, it can uh, give great, you know, directional sentiment on um, what expectations are. And so what we've been seeing, especially recently, is that a lot of the selling has been occurring from um, short-term holders. So a lot of individuals who've kind of um, acquired within the past 12 to 18 months, partially because, you know, 12 to 18 months, they, they're finally hitting break-even levels and, and there's certain psychological element to I'm, I've been underwater for a while and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm excited to finally get out or there's also just a lot of underlying trading going on. But the, the main takeaway is that while you do have these, these volatile price moves, the longer term holders have, have continued to hold. And, and you're, you're starting, you saw the accumulation kind of occur um, earlier this year and, and it's held strong. And so the idea is that, the the price action recently has been dictated by um, short term traders and not necessarily uh, long term holders that that are either you know just trying to cash out or or or, or have have different plans and, and kind of are giving up for for example which you know if you think about how long they've been holding and 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 the understanding of the space you had to have at the time to have the conviction to invest the idea here is that they 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 see the upside because they've been in a lot longer and so. Um, you're able to kind of understand that these short-term price moves are, are dictated mostly by traders. And it's not this large exodus like you kind of saw at the end of 2017, where we did see a lot of these long-term holders cash out and, and for the most part to, to rebuy, or at least partially. And so what it does is it creates, it, it gives, it creates a, a level of comfort and understanding that, you know, the short-term price action is just that. And it's not necessarily uh, the start of a, a new bear cycle, you know, just because we've uh, peaked at 14. And, and so it, this is more of a consolidation stage rather than um, any kind of long-term reversal. 
All right. So we're going to discuss some of the other technical factors, I guess, or technology related factors probably is a better way to put it. Because I'm suddenly realizing technical means a very specific thing when it comes to trading. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, we're going to discuss that all in a second. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government backed stable coins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy-Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Back to my conversation with Jan Lieberman. So for a long time, people have been <laughs> discussing is maybe a euphemistic phrase for um, <laughs> what's been going on around scaling in Bitcoin. But the solution right now looks to be building on layer two. How is that effort going right now? And what effect is that having on the Bitcoin price? Sure. Um, it's It's been developed, like Lightning is developing, it's developing slowly. And um, I think what really helps with Bitcoin is that in the near to medium term, the ability to scale on layer two isn't, isn't, uh, mandatory. So there's Bitcoin can be very successful for quite some time before layer two scaling is really necessary, partially because it's, it's not supposed to be this medium of exchange immediately. The idea is that it's, it's, it's a, a non-correlated, non-sovereign store of value and, and the value is in security and its immutability, not so much in the capacity to transact quickly right now. And so what's while, while Lightning is developing slowly, the, uh, Bitcoin definitely stands to benefit from the fact that there isn't this immediate need to scale. And so the fact that, you know, Lightning is developing, but not as rapidly as some people might have hoped the impact on price is minimal just because it's it's not really crucial to its value at the moment and and probably not for the foreseeable future. And on a related note, there was a, a report uh, by Electric Capital recently on developer activity in the crypto space. And I had the author of that report, Maria Shen, on the show. And at that time, uh, because the report noted that Ethereum's co- developer community was by and large uh, but was far and away the largest. And um, I, if I remember correctly, I think it was like maybe about 3x something that of Bitcoin, like 1200 devel- developers or something over 400. I should check that and I'll add a little thing if, if my facts are not wrong or not correct. But anyway, um, at the same time, Ether's price has not really gone up. And in fact, you know, Bitcoin dominance really has pulled away while Ether so far this year has just languished in the 100 to $200 range. Do you have a, have a theory as to why its developer activity and its price seem to be disconnected? Absolutely. And uh, it's, 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 it's a, I think it's a combination of things. So initially, you have to think about what really drove Ether to, to hit those 1400 plus levels. And a lot of that was the ICO fueled mania, which 
created direct demand for Ethereum as the ICOs fundraise and then subsequently led to massive selling as they had to liquidate to, you know, uh, for, for fundraising reasons. And so that, that was one reason where you, you kind of see this massive sell off despite the, the rampant development um, that's going on. And then the other issue is that there, there isn't a direct translation from developer to, to price in this situation. So while there may be more individuals developing on Ethereum, Ethereum has some significant short-term um, headwinds in, in the fact that it does need to really scale in order to kind of even achieve uh, you know significant value in, in the short to medium term, and which is kind of something that Bitcoin again benefits from not being restricted to. So and, and wait, and so why does that matter for Ethereum when it doesn't matter for Bitcoin? Sure. So the in order for Ethereum to really gain value, it, it needs to have a thriving. Um, ecosystem of, of functioning dApps and, and, and like explicit use cases. And there's a lot, you know, the DeFi is, is growing on Ethereum, uh, definitely, but you're, you're still seeing just uh, a couple percent of Ethereum locked up in DeFi. And so, you know, that, that's not going to create enough kind of uh, velocity sync to help bring, um, prices up. So in, in order for Ethereum to truly scale and have the, the underlying, um, transaction throughput, to, to kind of achieve this level, then it, it needs to scale. And so what scaling allows it to do is, you know, part of what drives value is, is, is the fact that you're having a significant on-chain volume. And so with the on-chain volume, that leads to gas fees. And, and that's what really drives value, especially once we move to, to proof of stake is kind of what's going to be, what's the yield that you can earn by, by staking Ethereum. And that's going to be very dictated by, um, these gas fees. And so in order for there to be enough throughput, you need the scalability and, and the scalability will lead to uh, hopefully functioning dApps. But the issue is, you know, you can, you're going to have a lot of these developers, but that doesn't necessarily directly translate to, to value accrual. And at the same time, you have a lot of these tokens that are building on Ethereum and there's, there's some elements of economic abstraction where, you know, they're being used as collateral versus Ethereum and it makes sense because, you know, in order for that token's use case to work, they do have to function as a collateral in order to help create some kind of uh, stability in the in the underlying, um, you know, the value of the collateral. And so while that kind of hinders Ethereum a little bit because now other tokens are, are abstracting the, the value that would have been attributed to Ethereum in the sense that Ethereum would have been used as that collateral. And so while Bitcoin can kind of, you know, function as uh, the, the store value and and uh, benefit from from you know security and it doesn't necessarily need to have this massive throughput for now. Ethereum is a bit handcuffed in the sense that it is you know it, it has it's trying to do something considerably more difficult and and that's definitely a fact. You know, Web three is a very complicated and and that whole idea is is very difficult. And in order to do that, there needs to be scaling and, and until that really happens, it's, it'll be difficult for there to be enough natural demand for Ethereum um, through its use to create some kind of upward price momentum. Yeah. So basically, Bitcoin doesn't necessarily need usage for the price to go up, but Ethereum does. And even then, in a way, almost because of its flexibility, the quote unquote, Turing completeness of the system, uh, some of that flexibility can also even take away some of the value of the ether, which is really interesting. 
So there are actually all these other developments in crypto that I think could also affect the price of Bitcoin. Um, Obviously, Facebook is potentially launching Libra soon. China is on the cusp of releasing its own cryptocurrency. And then, you know, I don't know if anything will happen of this, but the Bank of England governor, Mark Carney, floated the idea of a global digital reserve currency. How do you think any of these factors will affect Bitcoin? I think uh, for the most part, they will have a positive impact. And and part of that is because, you know, what they're doing doesn't really cannibalize Bitcoin's value. Bitcoin's value comes from the fact that it's it's immutable, it's uncensorable, and it's uh, non-sovereign. So you, there, you can't really issue more. So the fact that there's this fixed schedule, so you, you kind of know what you're getting. Whereas with these, whether it's with Libra or uh, creating a digital version of, of, you know, fiat currencies, the underlying issues are still there where there's still going to be, um, you know, infl- inflation will kind of continue. That that's it, It's, it's going to be the case. There will be considerable issuance. And so the issue is that you kind of have to, you know, while they're both digital in that respect, the value accrual mechanisms vary. And, and so, what I think the benefit will be is that you're going to have a lot more individuals comfortable with the idea of a digital asset and there will be considerable wallet integration, which will make those that aren't necessarily interested in Bitcoin or, or, you know, don't have easy access to it. They'll, they'll honestly just create a bridge to that access. And you kind of saw that initially with Ethereum where, you know, Ethereum brought a lot of interest to the space and a lot of that value ended up accruing to Bitcoin and I think what what will happen here is this will it'll just make individuals more comfortable with the idea of a digital asset, what it means, how to use it, how to transact. Because even even now, you know, the, the UI is, is still not there. Every, everyone is worried when they have to type in, you know, the public key and, and to, to send Bitcoin anywhere. And so there are these concerns. You still, you know, cross your fingers and, and, and hope everything works. And so until that's remedied, until you can really see. Until you can basically use it without having this concern where, where it just functions as seamlessly as everything else, this this kind of on-ramp of, of new users will, will always be a benefit. And so having individuals more comfortable with these assets is definitely going to be a plus. Yeah. Um, by the way, that point you mentioned about how you can type a wrong character and lose all your Bitcoins, this was a point that, quote unquote, Hamilton made in the crypto rap battle that Reid Hoffman released this week. And... Um, it's an amazing video. You guys should check it out. I have a very tiny, tiny cameo, um, it, but it's super fun. All right. Well, um, thank you so much, Jan. It's been great having you on the show. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discuss, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Factor Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Rich Straffolino, and Josh Durham. Thanks for listening.